So we read the scripture of Jesus disappearing in Emmaus and reappearing in Jerusalem amongst the apostles. And um, let, me, let me go through it again. Here's the first few verses. It says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Some of you know I'm a magician. I would just love to have seen that, right? And he said to them, peace to you, or peace to you, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Some translations say a ghost. And he said to them, now how about this for a question? Why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your heart? Now, if I were there, I would say, well, first, I'm troubled because a man has just appeared out of nowhere in a secure room. Right? That's a little troubling. Secondly, we saw you dead three days ago, and now you're alive, you're healthy, you're showered. Um, that's why we're, 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 we're a little troubled. Um, so he goes on, and he has a threefold agenda. Before he ascends into heaven, he wants to make sure they understand three things. Okay? First, he wants them to understand that he's really alive. He gives them proof. Okay? Second thing he does is he gives them the plan of what we're supposed to be doing for, between his first coming and his second coming. All right? The Great Commission. So he gives proof. He gives them the plan, and then he says, but before you go out and do anything, wait for the Holy Spirit, wait for the power. All right, so there you go. Three-point outline, proof, plan, power. So they're still, they're still confused. They can't believe it's really him. They don't know what to believe, uh, and they think he's a ghost. So he first says, i got to give these guys proof. All right. So here's the proof. Now, he's going to give them two kinds of proof. One, physical proof, and second, scriptural proof. All right, so first of all, physical proof or physical evidence. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me, and see, for a spirit, a ghost, does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, um, from John's gospel, remember Thomas doesn't believe. And he says, unless I can touch his hands and feel his wounds, I won't believe. So Jesus later on appears to Thomas, and he says, Thomas, come here, feel, feel that. You, you know what that tells us? That even the resurrected, fully healed Jesus still has scars in his hands, in his feet, and his side. And I believe when we are with him in the new heaven and the new earth, we will be able to feel the scars that saved us. Right? But he, he offers them the evidence that they, they need. Right? Feel this. A ghost, you can't feel a ghost's bones. Feel me. Right? Then in uh, 41, he says, while they still disbelieve for joy. Okay, before it was, I don't believe this is possible. Now, I can hardly believe it's possible. 
right? And they're, they're happy. And while marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. You go, oh, well, he's been dead for three. He must be really hungry. That's why he wants something to eat, right? No. He just ate in Emmaus, right? Broke the bread, and he ate, and then he disappeared, and he showed up here. Why is he doing this? He's proving that he's human, that he's alive, that he's not a ghost. Um, what is interesting is he eats a lot after his resurrection. He ate in Emmaus, and that's when their eyes were opened. He eats here, and that's when they get it. Remember, he goes up to Galilee, and they're fishing after the resurrection, and um, he's on the shore. And they go, it's the Lord. And Peter dives in and they have the catch of fish. And you know what he does? He makes them breakfast and he eats a piece of fish. Why all the eating? I, I think he's proving to them, look, real, real flesh and bones, real digestive system. Okay? So he gives them the physical proof that they need. But physical proof of a miracle apart from tying it to the Old Testament scriptures, doesn't mean anything. So he now goes on to give them uh, scriptural proof that this was all prophesied. Um, you know, there was a, a rabbi by the name of Pincus Lapid. Some of you may have heard of, of him. And uh, he was not a believer, did not believe in Jesus, and he examined all the evidence about the, the resurrection of Christ that we covered a few weeks ago. Remember, we talked about the fact that um, the, the story of the resurrection of Christ, his death and resurrection, is uh, embedded in history. It's not told like a myth, but real names are named, Pontius Pilate and Herod and Joseph of Arimathea. And uh, th there was an empty tomb in Jerusalem that nobody could explain. Right? And then there were eyewitnesses who were willing to die for Christ. So he looked at this evidence, this Jewish rabbi, and you know what he concluded? He concluded that there was a man from Je uh, named Jesus from Nazareth who was crucified under the authority of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Jerusalem. He died, was put in a tomb, and three days later, Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, and God did a miracle. He concluded that that's all true, and then he went on to say, but he's not the Messiah. What was he missing? Well, he was missing the scriptural evidence, okay? He didn't understand that not only was this a miracle, but it was a miracle prophesied by his own scriptures, the Old Testament. So that's why it says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And I pointed out last week that that threefold division, the, the law, the prophets, and the psalms, 
That's how the Jews divided up their Old Testament scriptures. And that threefold division corresponds with the Protestant Old Testament. Catholics and Protestants have different numbers of books in, the, in their Old Testament. But one of the arguments that the Protestants will use to say we've got the right ones is they correspond to the threefold division that Jesus talked about. But that's a whole different sermon, okay? Um, but here he's saying, hey, everything, didn't I tell you? Everything needed to be fulfilled that was written about me in the Old Testament. Right? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, which is why we pray before we do a Bible study or before uh, when we have church, because we need the Lord to open our minds. So he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. Now, last week, when we did the road to Emmaus, we did a speculative Bible study. What, what did Jesus cover when he walked down the road with these guys? And what did he cover with the apostles, tying him to the Old Testament? And uh, I'm not going to repeat that whole sermon, but just, you know, we, we looked at things like the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 that a descendant of Eve will crush the head of the snake. That's the first prophecy of a Messiah coming. And we saw that Isaac being sacrificed on the mountain was a type, a picture of God being willing to sacrifice his son. And Joseph, the, the innocent, righteous sufferer who's raised to the right hand of Pharaoh, is a picture of Jesus. And the whole sacrificial system is a picture of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the three institutions, the, the, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, they were all imperfect, but they pointed to the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And Joshua, who led them into the promised land, his name, by the time it gets transliterated into Greek, is Jesus. And Jesus is the new Joshua who will lead us into the promised land. And then Isaiah talks about a boy who will be born, and he will be called Mighty God. He'll be born of a virgin, and he'll be pierced for our transgressions. So we covered all that, all right? Um, but there's, there's one more reference to the Old Testament that Jesus talks about here that I've, I've struggled with for, for many years. And I've, I've asked, where is that in the Old Testament? And that's the reference to Christ rising on the third day. All right? And he said, verse 46, to them, thus it is written that, Christ, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now, um, if I were to say, okay, million dollars to the first one who can find the verse that says that the Christ will rise from the dead on the third day, I couldn't pay you a million, but if, if there was a million dollar prize, where would you go? Anybody have a, have a verse? Come on, million dollars on the line. 
Well, okay, so, so a lot of people say, well, it's got to be Jesus' reference to Jonah. Because Jesus says, um, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the earth, belly of the earth for three days. Now, um, that is an analogy, okay? It's perfectly fine to say, hey, this happened and something similar will happen, but is it really a prophecy? Well, here is where I think the Old Testament prophesies that the Christ will rise on the third day. And Rita, you're right, it's in the Psalms. Okay? So, somebody write her a check. All right. But do you know which one? <laughs> That'd be close. Uh, that's the pierced and all that. But, all right, I'm going to say 16. You know why I'm going to say 16? Because Peter on the day of Pentecost, the first sermon preached, he exegetes Psalm 16, verse 10. All right? So where am I on here? Let's see, right here. Um, Psalm 16, 10. So, so Peter stands up, and there's thousands of people in the streets of Jerusalem. He's probably on the steps, the southern steps of the temple. And he starts preaching about Jesus. And he says, in Psalm, and he did, they weren't numbered back then, so he says, in the Psalms, and he quotes from Psalm 16.10, and he says, David wrote this. And this is what David wrote. For you will not, David speaking to God, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter then goes on to say, David spoke this, but it couldn't be about David because David's tomb is over there. David's in the tomb. He, he's in Jerusalem, and David's tomb's around the corner from the temple. He's saying this couldn't have been David. Acts 2.31. Well, then who was it about? He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So he zeroes in on that word corruption. David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Christ, the Messiah, that his body wouldn't see corruption. And for years I've thought, hmm, did the Jews have a belief that the body started to decay on the fourth day, but not on the third day? Do you remember when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead? Goes to the tomb and he goes, roll the stone away. And in John eleven thirty nine, 39, okay, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Is that me? Okay. I'm very electric. All right. Um, so, she says, don't, it's day four. The King James says, by now he stinketh. Okay. 
So that got me thinking, was there some kind of a, a, a view that the Jews had that on, what do I do to stop making noise? I just keep going. It doesn't bother you, does it? No. Anybody else bothered by the noise? No? Okay. All right. Just want to make sure you're not bothered by that. Just keep, keep it going, right? Okay. All right, so um, here, Martha says, day four, stinks. Then I thought, you know what? There's got to be something out there addressing this issue. Did the Jews have a belief that day four was corruption day? Put it in the old Google machine. Guess what I came up with here? Here is an interesting article. JETS is the Journal of Evangelical Theology, Theological Society. Uh, article on the third day by a guy named Martin Pickup. Okay. Uh, but it's a scholarly article, 100 footnotes, 32 pages long, and here's his conclusion. From all of the above data, we derive from the rabbinic corpus, the New Testament, and contemporary Jewish literature, we can conclude that decay setting in after the third day of death was a well-established concept in Jewish society as early as the time of Jesus. The third day was known to be the last day that a corpse could be identified and the last day that a body could be buried or a tomb entered before decomposition began. I think the, the fact that Peter and Paul in Acts refers to the same verse that the scriptures prophesied that he will resurrect on the third day, and they quote Psalm 1610, put it together, he had to come out of the grave before day four. All right? So, all that to say, Jesus is with the apostles. Agenda number one, he wants to give them proof. He gives them physical proof. Feel my hands. Give me a piece of fish. Give you some scriptural proof. You know, we don't know what verses he pointed to. Okay. Then he goes on to give them the plan, the marching orders. Okay. There we go. The plan, the great commission. He says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, in the name of the Christ, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now, um, Matthew's version of the Great Commission is a command. Go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lo, I'm with you always. It's a command. Luke includes the essence of it, but in the context of Jesus explaining that all these things were prophesied. Even the Great Commission was prophesied in the Old Testament. And that's important because some of the Jews may have said, well, wait a minute, we're supposed to take this message to the Gentiles? Where's that in Scripture? Well, well, let me show you where it is. All the way back in Genesis, remember God picks one man, Abraham, 
He's childless. He says, you're going to be the father of many nations. And then he says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We find out that in you means that he's going to have descendants and that he's going to have a particular descendant and in him, this line and this particular descendant, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right there's the Great Commission. The Jews were never chosen just to be blessed themselves. From the beginning, they were chosen to bring forth the Messiah. And yes, through you, Abraham, and your descendant, the whole world would be blessed. So that's, that's where Jesus says, oh yeah, right from the beginning. This whole Great Commission. This is not a new idea. It goes all the way back to Abraham. Now, what is the essence of the Great Commission? Well, let me go back. That repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Okay? Repentance is... What am I doing? Oh, I should have shaved. Huh? Okay. Um, (laughs) She's irritated. She's just, keep going, keep going. All right. Um, (laughs) Repentance. What's repentance? Repentance, theologically, is more than just feeling bad about your sin. Okay? You can feel bad and go hang yourself like Judas did. True repentance is a supernatural change of heart. Where before you were running from God, now you turn. He changes your heart, and now you're running toward him. Right? Remember the prodigal son? Dad, give me my inheritance. You go drop dead, and he runs away. And then he comes to his senses. He has a change of heart, and he turns, and he goes back to his father. Right? Um, God has always been a God who receives repentant sinners. This is, this is nothing new. Okay? Uh, the youth, they're studying Jonah. Jonah's supposed to go to Nineveh and call them to repentance. Jonah doesn't like that. Right? Now, sometimes we give Jonah a hard time. We go, oh, what a, what a louse Jonah was. Well, what do you know about the Ninevites? Here's uh, what a commentary says. The Ninevites were known for their cruelty, killing men, raping women, ripping babies from wombs, and crushing their children's heads against rocks. They often skinned their victims and impaled their bodies, leaving them to die. They often forced parents to watch their children get burned alive before murdering the parents. They also buried victims up to their necks in sand and left them to die of hunger, thirst, or wild animal attacks. Entire cities would commit suicide rather than fall into the hands of the Ninevites. Can you sympathize with Jonah a little bit more now? Right? So, Jonah, go preach repentance. He goes, no, I don't want to do it. Gets goes on the ship, gets swallowed by the whale, gets spit out, and he goes, okay, I think I'll go do it now. Right? But um, he preaches that you got 40 days and you'll be destroyed. 
The Ninevites repent. God spares them. And Jonah's not happy. You know why? Seems unfair. Somebody should pay. How can God just forgive these cruel people because they repent? There should be justice. Right? Somebody should pay for this. And that's where Christ comes in. Right? Romans 3. If, if, if Jonah understood the gospel and where Christ fits in, he would go, oh, somebody did pay. Right? God put forward referring to Jesus, forward Jesus, as a propitiation, a a substitute who pays the price by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. You see, he forgave people in the past. And people said, that's unjust. Jonah said, that's unjust. So you know what God did? In time... He sent Jesus to the cross. Why? This was to show his righteousness, his justice at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He put forth Jesus to receive the just penalty So people would not point to forgiven sins in the past or future or at any time and say, God can't just do that. It's unfair. Somebody needs to pay. And God says, yes, somebody does need to pay. And he puts forth Jesus so he, God, could forgive, so he could be just and be the justifier. A justifier is one who declares you innocent. You see, the issue of justice is important, and that's why Christ went to the cross. So, um, all that to say, God has always been a God who forgives repentant sinners. Now, um, that's also why the gospel needs to include Christ in it. The gospel is not just repent and God will forgive you. It's repent and God will forgive you because of Christ. That is is, um, why we can't just go around pointing to a generic God. It's the God of the Bible who's fully just and fully loving. And Christ is, is the one who makes sense of it all because he was set forth as a propitiation. Okay, Now, um, they were the first witnesses. It says, you're witnesses of these things. We are to continue witnessing. We're to take the baton and witness to the reality of Christ. Now, I have a sense that a lot of Christians are not doing that great these days, witnessing. So let me give you a test. Who's the last person you led to the Lord? Now, some of you might say, I just led somebody to the Lord. That's great. I, I don't hear a whole lot of stories of, oh, I just led so-and-so to the Lord. Okay? Now, you say, yeah, but we live in tough times. It's contentious out there. It's relativistic. It's postmodern. We go all the cultural things, all the cultural barriers. 
But I think we also need to ask, is there something I'm doing or not doing that might be contributing to being a bad witness? And I think in this text, there's a clue um, to, to something we need to be aware of, and it's the word nations. So let's see here. What I, what I need to do is learn how to read this thing. Okay. Notice um, you're, you're to, to, to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. Now, why is that significant? Well, the early church was told to take the gospel, and they were all Jews, right? All the apostles were Jews. They were to take the gospel to other nations. Do you know that the book of Acts is about how difficult it is to go from one nation to another, from one culture to another, and preach the gospel? It's about um, the apostles waking up to the fact that their cultural preferences were getting in the way of reaching the Gentiles. You know that whole thing about Peter up on the roof and the unclean thing comes down, eat it, and Peter goes, no, no, I can, I've never eaten unclean, I've never eaten pork. And then he goes, oh, I get it, I'm supposed to go to the Gentiles. My pork problems are getting in the way of the gospel. All right? And um, the, the whole problem with Paul going to churches is that the Judaizers were coming in behind and saying, you can't let those Gentiles just believe in Jesus and get in that easy. they got to be circumcised and keep the Sabbath and do all these, these laws, the Jewish laws. And Paul has to, to, to be an apostle to the Gentiles and the Jews and navigating this tension between the two cultures was a barrier in proclaiming the gospel. Now, here's Paul's um, treatise on the proper attitude we need to have if we're going to reach people of a different culture. Now, when I say a different culture today, I don't just mean somebody from another country. There are people from different cultures all around us could be um, age issues, could be political. Have you ever noticed there's some political issues going on these days? Right? Um, there is tension in the air. It's on us to navigate those waters carefully. And here's what Paul says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. In other words, when I was with Jews, I ate kosher. I kept Sabbath. I went by the Jewish laws. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Shut up and don't eat the pork, right? Because them not going to hell is more important than me demanding my right to a pork sandwich. Okay. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. They put a pork sauce, uh, sausage in front of him, and he doesn't go, oh, no, 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 I'm a Jew, I don't know. Just eat it. Right. To the weak, 
I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And then after several chapters, he says this, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. What's he saying? You got to decide what's more important. Winning souls to Christ or winning the cultural argument. Okay. Now, I am not saying never should you talk about politics. Okay. I think you should. Here's what I am saying. What's more important to you, winning a political argument or winning their soul? Here's here's the way to really think about it. Can we tell people about the love of Christ after first letting them know how much we despise them? Right? If you end up railing and despising and then say, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. And I think 1 Corinthians 9 and 10 are the chapters that need to be studied in this day and age. Okay. So, Jesus says we're, t- we're going global. Take the gospel, which is now centered on Christ. It's about forgiveness of sin and repentance. You're my witnesses. Go. All right. But before you go, one last thing. You need some power. All right. The power comes from the Holy Spirit. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Okay? They wait, and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They speak in tongues, and then they go out in the street and they preach, and 3,000 people believe and get baptized that day. Now, big dis- dispute is this. Is the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, when they speak in tongues and they get filled with the Holy Spirit, is that a unique historical event or is that a pattern that we should seek after? Okay. Um, In other words, should you seek after the baptism of the Holy Spirit as uh, indicated by speaking in tongues so you have a fuller experience with the Spirit? My answer to that question, my, my theological leaning is that that was a one-time historical event. But here's how I would answer the question. Was that a pattern we're to seek after or a historical event? My answer is it was historical, but. Okay. It was historical, but. What do I mean by that? Well, um, I think it was a historical moment in time where believers uh, entered into a new era, and God poured out his spirit. They spoke in tongues. But as we read the rest of Scripture, speaking in tongues is not the indication of, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That, that, that was a historical event. Today, I don't believe speaking in tongues or any gift of the Spirit is an indication that you're full of the Spirit, other than the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and gentleness, so forth, that's more of an indication that you're full of the Spirit than that you have any spiritual gift, even preaching. Okay? Um, But having said that, 
Okay? So there are those who are seeking after tongues to be full of the Spirit. And then there are those on the other, let me go over here, on the other extreme who say, that was historical. You don't need to seek after anything. And I'm going to say, that was historical. You are filled and baptized with the Spirit when you are a believer, but you can leak. All right? So, don't, I wouldn't say go speak, seeking after tongues or even seeking after the baptism of the Spirit, but I would say that you should seek after this, to be filled with the Spirit. So, and, and sometimes it just boils down to different terminology. What one person means by the baptism of the Spirit, another person means by just a, another dose, another vaccine of the Spirit. Okay, But in Ephesians 5.18, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And here's where a little bit of Greek is a dangerous thing. Um, Be filled is in the present tense. Continually be filled with the Spirit, which means there are times you are not filled with the Spirit and times you're more filled with the Spirit. Okay, so here's here's a, a, a test: Are you exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Have you led anyone to the Lord lately? Have you shed a tear lately for somebody who doesn't know the Lord? Are you living life in light of reaching people for the gospel, or is it more important just to win, win, win every argument? Okay. I, I, I was evaluating myself yesterday when I was um, snow, snow blowing my driveway when it was below zero. And uh, I was evaluating myself, and I felt the Lord saying, you know, go do your, your neighbor's driveway because they're Muslim, and they did my driveway the other day. And I said, no, Lord, it's too cold. <laughs> and he said, uh-huh. So I did their driveway. And then I'm freezing, and I'm like, you know what? If I'm going to do their driveway, I should probably check on my parents, my 80-year-old parents who are. So I got in the car and went over, and I did their driveway. And I'm not bragging. I'm showing you that I have that same thing where I, if, I, if I'm not submitting to the Spirit, I can become selfish. And when I am submitting to the Spirit, I'm not saying it was easy. But he led me to do that. All right? So, um, how do you get filled with the Spirit? Well, one simple way is yes, you repent and come to Christ. And then later on, as you're growing as a Christian, you examine yourself and you repent again. And you confess your sins again. And you ask him to forgive you. And you ask him to fill you again. And that is a great lead-in to communion. Communion is not some magical thing where you drink the juice and it gives you power. Communion reminds you that God is just and the justifier 
who put forth Christ as a propitiation, and we remember what he did for us. And we confess our sins to him, and we ask for him to forgive us, and we ask to be filled with the Spirit. And we leave filled with the Spirit. Not perfect, not infallible, but we had an encounter with the Lord. So that is what we are going to do. So let me pray. The worship team can come on up, and then we'll have communion. Lord, as we look at these last words that you have with the apostles, we see ourselves in their shoes, amazed, doubting with joy at times, wondering how it all fits together so you explain it, and then needing the power of the Spirit so we can follow, so we can witness, so we can obey. So Lord, thank you that you send your, your gift, the Holy Spirit, to convict us, to have us repent, to have us run to you. I pray, Lord, that each one here would truly repent of any sin, turn to you, and you would pour out your forgiveness and pour out your spirit afresh on us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.